Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. You know, it's been quite a good while since I was on the air last with all of you. Probably been at least almost close to a week. I didn't want any of you all to think that I had forgotten about you all. Uh, but as I've said before, sometimes things come up and um, there are other things that, you know, take precedent. But then again, uh, that's to be expected. And as I've said before, I can't revolve my life around podcasting. As much as I enjoy doing it, I also have to realize that um, there does have to be balance in life. But, you know, um, a lot has been going on since I was on the air last. Uh, my wife and I uh, recently um, were in uh, Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, we were there from this uh, past Friday through the weekend. And as I've said before, no matter how many times we go to uh, the historic triangle, that is Virginia's historic triangle, for those of you who may not be familiar with uh, Colonial Williamsburg uh, being Virginia's capital from 1699 up until about 1780, Jamestown being the first from 1607 to 1699. But no matter how, t how many times we go to Williamsburg, we're always learning uh, something new. You know, like Virginia, like the other uh, colonies, Virginia was one of the 13 colonies, who is governing Virginia? A governor. Well, um, my wife and I were on a um, Christmas tour, and we were learning about uh, Christmas's past from the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And one of the um, homes in historic Williamsburg belonged to uh, the Carter family, most notably Robert Carter III. But his grandfather was known as... Um, Robert King Carter. The tour guide asked us, she pretty much said, you know, many of you all probably are wondering why would someone be called Robert King Carter when he was not even a king himself? Well, I've known this answer for some time, and I first learned about it years ago when uh, on a visit to um, Shirley Plantation, which is in uh, Charles City County, not far from uh, where Williamsburg is in uh, James City County. So I told this uh, tour guide on Saturday that, um, that the reason why Robert Carter was referred to as King Carter was because he was one of the wealthiest landowners in North America during the time which he was alive. He held um, land properties that stretched as far west as present-day Ohio. If that tells you anything about just how um, wealthy Robert King Carter was, that should be um, an ultimate uh, clue or an ultimate um, fact there that uh, personifies one's wealth during that time, uh, most notably in uh, the colonial heydays of Williamsburg, not just of Williamsburg, but owning land that went beyond Virginia. But of course, most well-to-do Virginians believe that Virginia went into what we now know as present-day Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, a.k.a. the Northwest Territory. So, you know, I'm not saying any of this to flaunt, but I'm glad that I could contribute to that um, discussion during the tour because I know that tour guides do everything they can to educate their um, their guests. But at the same time, I'm sure many of them are left wondering, how much do people really know? How much do people really know about their history? 
I'm glad that I can sometimes fill a void for the tour guides by being able to provide them with answers so that they can give uh, more valid information or valuable information, I should say, when uh, giving um, future tours down the road. Sometimes I do get amazed at what other people have to say in terms of odd responses. I shouldn't be judgmental about that. Of course, I know that not everyone may know history. Of course, I I may know a lot of history, but at the same time, I'm always learning something new whenever I go to Williamsburg or somewhere historic that I um, take a lot of interest in. So that's the irony with history, folks. Just when we think we've learned everything there is to know, we actually come to the realization that we're always learning something new that was not taught to us beforehand. So for those of you who haven't been to Colonial Williamsburg, or let alone to Jamestown or Yorktown, which makes up Virginia's historic triangle, I strongly recommend going. You won't regret it for one minute, and for those of you who live uh, out of state, you probably could spend a whole week there, because there's just there truly is a lot to do. Well, we are now finally at the end of um, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger. When we're at the end of a um, discussion, that is often what we call the epilogue. Prologue being the introduction, the epilogue being the ending, or rather I should say the closing. How do we go about concluding American Tempest, and how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. Well, the best way to go about concluding this is to tell a story onto itself. In other words, it's fair to say that the events that happened between late November and, and into mid-December mid of 1773 were just not accidental incidents. They weren't isolated incidents. Isn't it fair to say that all the history that we have learned starting in 1733 did have a significant impact that would um, eventually lead to, um, not just so much to the all-out inevitable, but lead, to, lead up to something that had been on the minds of uh, the colonists, most notably New Englanders in Massachusetts. You know, it's one thing to place a tax on your uh, subjects, but how about consent? Is it fair to say that there really had been 40 years of improper consent? What started out as something trivial and over time got bigger. Others may not have seen it, but New Englanders were very, very um, weary and yet ever so cautious that as Parliament continued to expand, and not just not Parliament continued to, to expand, but the British government continuing to expand beyond um, the 13 colonies terrain west of the Appalachians. Is it fair to say that when one overextends their empire, that other further conflicts will arise? Perhaps so. So here we go with um, our epilogue to American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. Relations between a monarch and his subjects. Okay, monarch, King George III, his subjects, 13 colonies. Relations between a monarch and his subjects 
can never achieve full 100% unity, even in times of prosperity. So let's remember, we don't always have to, it doesn't always have to be um, in a time of war when uh, relations sour. History has shown that even when in times of um, non-warfare, that a monarch or a governing body and its subjects below them don't always see everything eye to eye. Colonial America was not without its share of past conflicts from within from within during the late 17th century, most notably the 1692 Salem witchcraft trials. Although uh, war had become a prevalent norm on colonial America soil since 1613 with regards to European colonization, including the forging of Indian alliances, times of hardship after warfare commenced never seemed to go away. In this case, given that New England's economy was one that revolved around war itself well before 1775, the year for which the first shots were heard around the world. So remember, folks, war with the mother country, or just conflict alone, did not all happen overnight on April 19th of 1775. So... Let, let's. Is it fair to say that we've already established by now that the first seeds of um, of con not of so much of conflict but of um, of uh, of just o of overall 101 tension took place well before 1775. Perhaps so, but I would definitely say yes. 1733 to most people seemed like a time of innocence for colonial America's people. Hey, the last of the 13 colonies was established, Georgia, under James Oglethorpe. So yes, 1733 to most people would have seemed like a time of innocence for colonial America's people. But one stroke of misfortune on Parliament's part planted the first seeds behind Massachusetts's opposition against taxation on a commodity, in this case being molasses. It was a tax, not so much on a commodity, but it was a tax imposed upon the subjects, being the people that Parliament was governing, a tax imposed upon the subjects without the subjects' direct consent. Remember folks, yes, molasses is a commodity, but what is the molasses being used for? It's not being used to put on your pancakes or on your bread. I mean, it is fair to say that, yes, you know, depending on where you live in colonial America, most notably in the southern colonies, you probably are using molasses for to put on your um, bread or on your um, what we might refer to as um, corn cakes or um, flapjacks. But molasses is used for what, folks? Rum. And is rum a popular beverage? You better believe it is. So that's where this tax is coming from on, um, on a commodity that goes towards making alcoholic beverages. Although the Molasses Act was enacted by Parliament in 1733 during a time of stability, Massachusetts's people had never faced severe restrictions at any other time with 
when dealing with taxes on, on all items considered profitable except for local fees that were customary norms, okay? Local fees, folks, like, you know, taxes that went towards the county or to the state, or the colony, rather, I should say, that you lived in. Parliament sought to curtail, or rather, I should say, crack down on all smuggled molasses coming from the French West Indies, but no matter how hard England's legislature tried, they couldn't break the will of those subjects whom sacrificed so much to make their economic livelihoods a successful reality, even if it meant going behind the crown's back and doing so, a.k.a. bending the rules. Think about it, folks. Smuggled um, products. Think about it. French, the French West Indies. It's not so much the French West Indies, but the taxes upon the uh, smuggled products are, are, are less. And, you know, people up north or New England are, are able to obtain these goods at a much cheaper rate versus what is trying to be produced in the British West Indies. Passing legislation regardless of its scope will have support and opposition from all corners within a greater society. However, subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean never had any true say over what they thought was just and unjust. People in Massachusetts did voice their opposition behind Parliament's passage of the 1733 Molasses Act, but there hadn't been any negotiations beforehand where mutual consent was agreed to on the part of the colonists. So in other words, yes, people in Massachusetts and perhaps elsewhere who were um, impacted by um, their abilities to um, produce um, rum as a result of this Molasses Act had pretty much been deprived of their of of an assortment of fundamental rights. One, to um, go about um, producing a commodity that was uh, profitable based upon their version of free enterprise, you know, minimal restrictions. But two, Parliament had, had denied these individuals or these fellow people the right to um, voice their proper say. In other words, Nobody was, was sent over from colonial America 3,000 miles across the ocean to Parliament to represent the colonists in saying that, hey, our people back in colonial America are not interested in these taxes because they are producing the stuff on their soil, so why should they be uh, impacted by something that does, not have any, um, that does not have anything to do with them? Well, haven't we learned about Samuel Adams quite a bit? Sam Adams, Boston's patriotic radical leader. He firmly held, or I should say believed, that consent itself was relevant when both parties came to the bargaining table and agreed to respect one, one another's rights without engaging upon any means of infringement. Okay, when you agree um, to something, and you and the other party has agreed to what you think is fair and just, 
Is it fair to say that this is also what's called a binding contract? You know, a handshake in the eyes of Samuel Adams, when two businessmen shake each other's hands, they are agreeing to respect one another, even if there are some differences, but they are also agreeing to respect the fact that a compromise has been made so that both parties walk away knowing that they got something out of the deal and that they are not to violate the opposite side's um, agreement or agreements. For Sam Adams, infringing upon another man's rights without his direct consent was unfair because it reduced one's decency. Yeah, you could say that it uh, it reduced one's, um, not just so much maybe the status for where they stood on the... Um, on the greater scale of society, but it just, it, it devalued a man. It basically said that, hey, if John Smith doesn't respect Tom Jones's um, stance upon a matter, if he doesn't agree, if he doesn't respect Tom Jones's, um, if he doesn't respect Tom Jones for who he is, then then how can Tom Jones go about um, agreeing to support something that he thought was fair and valid? So for Samuel Adams, it was bad enough that, if, that, if, that infringing upon another man's rights without his direct consent, if that's bad enough, how about worse yet, it made a man feel no longer valued? Perhaps the 1733 Molasses Act marked the early stages behind taking away an individual's right to fair and proper consent when a governing institution, like Parliament, felt it was truly necessary in curtailing an economic industry's current state of unprecedented growth. Maybe it's fair to say that Parliament was beginning to act like a bunch of crabs in a barrel. They couldn't stand to see that their subjects, 3,000 miles across the ocean, had more success. And in the case with Massachusetts, it, weren't they producing more uh, ships than, um, than what England alone was doing? Absolutely. So is it fair to say that Parliament just had had enough of their subjects' successes to where maybe their subjects need to start paying some more hefty taxes? Hefty taxes that over time will curtail the current levels of unprecedented growth. 1733 laid the foundations for what would come after the Seven Years' War came to an end in 1763, a.k.a. the French and Indian War, when Parliament began tightening its control upon her subjects, the 13 colonies. This reign of, of unexpected tight control began shortly after the war ended, most notably with the 1763 Proclamation, which prohibited all westward expansion past the Appalachian Mountains into what we now know as the Ohio Territory and into what we call now the Northwest Territory. You know, what's ironic, though, is that people did somehow manage to make their way westward Parliament didn't want her subjects infringing upon the territory of the uh, Indians, most notably that of the Shawnee, the Mingo, uh, the Delaware, and any other tribes that would have um, that any other tribes that would have been uh, west of the Appalachians. 
But yet, settlers did make their way. Settlers weren't to be deterred. We don't know exactly how many went westward, but we know that settlers did make their way because they felt that Parliament had promised them something before this war ended, and now that Parliament has denied them, the settlers aren't going to sit back and let Parliament stomp all over them. That 1763 proclamation was, a, was just the first of many hard injustices for, or for the colonies to digest. Then you had an assortment of laws starting from the Sugar or the American Revenue Act, the Currency Act, the Stamp Act, the Declaratory Act, the Townshend Act's duties. Yes, we pretty much covered all these uh, pieces of legislation from past podcasts. But what did all these pieces of legislation, what did they represent, folks? Well, for starters, they were all enacted during the post uh, after the French and Indian War ended. But they were all enacted without providing any direct consent to the colonists. In other words, Parliament, you know, is about 145 million pounds in debt after fighting a war to keep um, her subjects safe from further Indian hostilities that would involve Britain's arch nemesis, the French. But Parliament has come to the realization that, hey, look, we stuck our necks out for our subjects. Now, maybe our subjects ought to return the favor and help us pay for these debts. Well, what do you know? Parliament subjects aren't too thrilled about that. I mean, they've got about a million pounds in debt. You know, there's a big difference between a million pounds in debt versus 145. Parliament subjects over time were able to pay their debts off. And that's great. But why should they have to fork out 145 million pounds of money that would take years on end to help, to help the mother country uh, get back in forms of surpluses. You know, it's one thing to uh, pass all this legislation, but isn't it fair to say that it comes at a price? You're extending your empire. At the same time, you're maintaining the defense, or rather I should say the safety of um of what we, by maintaining safety, you're preventing further Indian attacks along the frontier. But at the same time, all of this opens the floodgates for what would become further disruptions, further disruptions of um, of relations that uh, were once relevant, but relations that now would start to deteriorate. You know, 1733 did plant the seeds of, um, it did, 1733 began, was the time that, um, or was the year that uh, the seeds were first planted that marked um, the beginning stages of uh, tension. Now, all of a sudden, we've, we went from 101 to beyond 101 in a few short years after 1763. It's amazing what war can do. You know, we think war is supposed to unite the monarch and her subjects. Hey, we've defeated the French. But at the same time, just because we've defeated the French and the Indians, 
it doesn't mean that everything else is just 100% rosy. This is a good case, folks, from what we've learned here, that it's like that old saying, so close but so far away. Although Parliament repealed the Stamp Act and everything else available, or rather I should say associated, to the Townshend Acts, one item still remained in place from the Townshend legislation. I'm going to have a sip of my beverage here. You all are probably wondering what it is I'm drinking, and I'm sure many of you all probably already know what it is I'm drinking. I, I, I shouldn't. This shouldn't come as a no-brainer, but if any of you all want to take a guess, go ahead. Tea. So, yes, what is that one item, folks, that still remained in place from the Townshend uh, legislation? The infamous tea. Which... Obviously, tea did not appeal to those who chose not to consume the beverage, but rather, if they really wanted to purchase tea, where do you purchase tea from? Outside sources. French West Indies, Dutch, or in Holland, Dutch smuggled Dutch tea. You get it brought in at a cheaper rate versus what the crown sold it for. Resistance against British East India Company tea on the part of the New Englanders meant that they had never forgotten what happened years earlier in 1733 when Parliament passed legislation curtailing an industry's economy, being one which had enjoyed unlimited prosperity despite receiving large shipments of rum having arrived illegally. Resistance to legislation is awkward for an empire to confront, especially if subjects are 3,000 miles across the ocean. Yeah, doesn't that make sense, folks? 3,000 miles across the ocean, it's one thing to pass legislation, but remember your subjects on the opposite side of the ocean are not going to find out this news the next day. It's going to take a couple of months, two months at best. But it is fair to say that by the time two months arrives, when news first gets out about the legislation, there's no guarantee that everybody's going to be happy about it. It's possible that maybe one-third of those living in colonial America might be happy about it, and then one-third are going to be in an uproar. And then you get that other third that, that really doesn't know where to go. Maybe it's that one-third that wants to be a moderate. They don't advocate violence. They don't advocate extremism to where one side um, where one side flaunts and um, and celebrates like there's no tomorrow over the fact that they have um, controlled the opposition to where the opposition will be deprived of everything and not have a say. So yes, resistance to legislation is awkward for an empire to confront, especially if the subjects are 3,000 miles across the ocean. An empire can wield authority. But from 1733 onward, going into the start of the early 1770s, the British... Let's pay attention to this very carefully, folks. The British, in my opinion, represented themselves as an elephant. Why an elephant, folks? 
it's not so much that an elephant is a large animal. It's that an elephant can represent a large empire. You know, elephants, elephants, you know, yes, are large and they, they can, I mean, they can charge when threatened, but for the most part, they are agile um, movers. They're slow. I mean, they're not slow like a tortoise, but, but when you see one up close, you know that it's, um, that it's, it, that it's, um, is demonstrating, or I should say, exerting its dominance its authority, not just over its younger herd, but by but if the but if older elephants are present, then you know not to mess with them. I think it's fair to say that you probably wouldn't want to mess with an with an animal, regardless of whether or not its um, parents were nearby. It's like not to get off subject here, but it's like you know if you saw a, a grizzly bear cubs, would you want to go up? to a grizzly bear cub? No. Because guess who's going to be, be nearby? The mother grizzly. And if you do get too close to an adult grizzly, the chances of you surviving are about one in a million. The only reason I know this is because I've seen enough documentaries on television to know that uh, there are a lot of people out there who have sadly played with fire and getting up close to grizzlies and have lost their lives. But the, set, but the same could be said for any animal that you would not want to uh, take your chances on. So what I'm trying to get at here, folks, and it's um, there, I haven't concluded this just yet, but what I'm trying to get at here is this. Why am I referring, though, overall to the British Empire as an elephant? Well, there was a political cartoon I saw some years back, and it had to do with the Vietnam War. The United States represented was portrayed as an elephant, an elephant that went into uncharted territory. And no matter where the elephant went, the elephant was met by um, an enemy from all directions. It wasn't just from the north, from North Vietnam, and it wasn't just from the south, it was from both directions. But isn't it fair to say that the enemy had to represent something that was small? We'll find out here in a moment. So, as I've said earlier, an empire can wield its authority, but from 1733 onward, going into the start of the early 1770s, the British, in my opinion, represented themselves as an elephant that had overexceeded its boundaries. No matter what direction the mighty elephant went, pay attention here, folks, it got confronted by mosquitoes a.k.a. angry colonists. Now, is it fair to say that this political cartoon that I could be referring to from the Vietnam War, people coming from opposite ends attacking the elephant, could they have been mosquitoes? Yes, absolutely. So, remember uh, Thomas Hutchinson that uh, famous Massachusetts governor, who was a proud loyalist, who was, you know, his family was related to the Olivers, Justice Peter Oliver. What did Thomas Hutchinson have to say that was so imperative about people's relationships with their government? I mentioned it in the introduction, but I have to mention it here again, so pay attention. 
Thomas Hutchinson, Massachusetts's governor, said the following about relation about the relationship people have with their government when relations appear sour or when relations themselves deteriorate, decline. And this is in quotations, folks. Pay attention. There is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed. I'll repeat it again. There is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed. Well, a government alone can't please everyone below with decisions made. But those whom aren't satisfied will always have something to to dissent about, or that is to disagree or complain about. And it's for a handful of reasons. Some of the reasons I've come up with are the following. For one, they don't appear to have a strong backbone to fall back onto. But this could be attributed either to a lack of education, self-centeredness, or simply believing that their government is out to get them because of personal misfortunes. Is it fair to say that even we see that in American society in today's time, and even elsewhere around the world? Throughout the world, regardless of what kind of government people live in, whether it's in a dictatorship or a democracy, it is fair to say that there is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed. Yes, the government alone can't please everyone below with any decision that gets made, but it is always fair to say that those whom are not satisfied will always have something to dissent about, and in large part it could be attributed to the fact that most of those dissenters do not always have a strong backbone to fall back onto. However, I, I also have to uh, tell myself this, and this is something that perhaps we all should be reminded of. Governor Thomas Hutchinson and other parliamentary figures failed to appreciate, and better yet, understand that those who believed they were badly governed didn't fall into society's uneducated classes. How do we know that, folks? Men from the merchant from the merchant profession, shopkeepers, tavern owners, all came out voicing their opposition behind why they believed government 3,000 miles across the ocean was in fact bad. And they voiced their opposition in a variety of ways. Some of it, yes, was a little bit extreme, but it, but the bottom line is is that we don't have to come from the lower from the lowest of society's tears to be what do you call it to be unhappy to be um to be dismayed you know you can be right in the middle class or the middling society and you could still be um disappointed at how your government is governing not just you but but your fellow uh citizens around you The tea, remember that famous, uh, that infamous tea that, um, that was a part of those Townshend duties from 1767? And yes, Parliament um, repealed all those, repealed about 99% of the items, most notably all the different kinds of um, paint, the lead, the glass, 
there, I mean, there were an assortment of uh, different types of glasses. I'm not talking reading glasses, but just, you know, glasses, um, or, or glass, rather, I should say, that, uh, that Parliament had included in those uh, Townshend Acts. Could the tea have been repealed by Parliament? Sure. I wished it had. It's not because of not liking tea, but it was because tea itself remained intact because it served as a reminder of whom above had supreme authority being Parliament. Parliament knew that by keeping the tea, that the tea, it's not just the tea itself, but needing to sell the tea, that is the tea from the East India Company, that Parliament was asserting its its uh, power over her, her subjects by letting her, her know, them know that, hey, look, we have a commodity that has to be sold, and whether you like it or not, it's going to get sold on your all soil. So you better just suck it up and, and accept the fact that we are still in control here. And if you all don't adhere to our uh, policy, then yes, expect, um, you know, expect consequences that could be very dire. Isn't it safe to say three years prior to 1773, remember that infamous Boston Massacre? Yeah, that was a dire consequence there. It didn't make it right that Ebenezer Richardson shot an 11-year-old boy two weeks before the massacre itself happened. However, it also didn't make it right that 11-year-old Christopher Sidair had participated with the um, mob crowds in um, not only uh, vandalizing shops, vandalizing uh, Ebenezer Richardson's shop, given that he was a customs collector. At the same time, though, uh, when people's um, actions get so out of hand, sadly, um, acts, of, um, acts of deadly consequences do happen. And it, is, and it was tragic that an 11-year-old boy, being uh, Christopher Sidair, lost his life. It didn't make it right for Ebenezer Richardson to fire into a crowd. He thought by firing it, he would deter the crowd and they would disperse. Yes, he was trying to protect his family, but at what expense? Killing an 11-year-old boy. That was a tragic expense right there. So, yes, Parliament is uh, trying to um, assert its uh, authority by keeping this tea in play to show her subjects that, hey, we still have supreme control. But at the same time, no matter how much control Parliament has placed on her subjects, it's only a matter of time before her subjects will do something else in retaliation that will, um, that will make Parliament realize that, hey, our subjects maybe aren't as stupid as, um, as we've made them out to be. This is where extremism has uh, taken um, its toll. So, the events of 1773 along Boston's Harbor, or Griffin's Wharf, between late November and mid-December 1773, demonstrated greater dismay behind people's relationship with their government than we had been previously taught from all past textbooks. Remember the textbooks pretty much told us just little snippets or blurbs of this Tea Party incident. 
they wanted us all to believe that the radicals behaved like a bunch of, um, how you call it, they behaved like a bunch of out-of-control men who had no boundaries. Yes, they may have been radical in their ideologies or their ideological thoughts. Thank heavens John Hancock had enough smarts or wise wisdom to tell Sam Adams and his men, hey, look, if you're going to um, dismantle, if you're going to um, ransack the chests of tea, focus on the tea only. Don't vandalize the ships. Don't sh don't set the ships on fire. Don't harm the ship's crew. We make sure that they are escorted properly off the wharf. This is not about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, the remaining cargo on the ships are to be spared. But your message is plain and simple. Take care of this constructively without violence. The textbooks didn't teach us that. But Harlow Giles Unger did. Now, back to uh, the case of the elephant and the mosquitoes. Remember, folks, the elephant representing the British Empire. And who are those mosquitoes? The angry colonists, or most notably Boston's waterfront mob crowd? The mosquitoes were small. Well, of course mosquitoes are small. And think about it. Mosquitoes move very quick. They come in one direction, they go in the next. So no matter what direction the elephant is going, is it fair to say that the mosquitoes mobilized with such sheer force that the elephant never knew what direction a swarm of critters would arrive from? So just when the elephant was taking a what we think of as a left turn, there's going to be a swarm of mosquitoes. It may not be a hundred mosquitoes, but they'll probably be about 10 or 20. If the elephant is distracted by the mosquitoes and wants to go, wants to change course, another group of mosquitoes is waiting just a few feet away. So is it fair to say that an elephant, being the British Empire, has stepped on, you know, it, Yes, the British Empire has stepped onto colonial America's soil plenty of times. But as relations are further deteriorating, the mosquitoes have not only just changed their attitude, but they have quantified in numbers that uh, had never probably been seen before. 1773 is kind of that boiling point juncture now. An elephant is large. But when mosquitoes attack from multiple directions, an elephant loses its backbone to where even large herds are no match for protecting their own valuable cargoes like tea. Placed on vessels located right in the harbor. Those three ships, vessels, they may not have been anywhere as large as the Titanic or the Lusitania, but they were big. They were big in the sense that they were carrying multiple cargoes of tea. About each one was carrying about roughly a, just over 100 chests of tea. or hundred, At least over 100 chests of tea. Mosquitoes, the mosquitoes prevailed on December 16, 1773, largely because waterfront crowds could populate at a much faster pace. to where cargoes of tea got dismantled without the enemy losing his life, being the elephant. 
but getting escorted away from all angles by not putting up a fight. So the elephants, being the, the crews of these ships, were escorted away without means of violence. But at the same, but just remember, folks, these elephants or these crews could not populate. In other words, they didn't have people on their side to back them up, all in the name of where their loyalty stood. David had slewed Goliath on December 16, 1773. This didn't mean that further hostilities lied ahead. It's probably fair to say that although David had in fact slewed Goliath on December 16, 1773 as a result of dumping the chests of tea into the Boston Harbor, what it meant is that, um, that the crown and the colonies were, on, were, were going on a collision course that within a short period of time would never be able to revert back to what back to what it was prior to um, the French and Indian War conflict breaking out, or, or even before, before that first um, infamous uh, act um, was enacted in 1733, that, um, which marked a watershed moment where Parliament had enacted taxes without direct consent from her subjects, the colonists. So David had slewed Goliath, largely due to convincing so many from within that for 40 years there had been steady governing inefficiencies. So even before Thomas Hutchinson made his famous remark of the following, being that there is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed, it's fair to say that for 40 years, from 1733 into the early 1770s, it didn't take much for people to become convinced that they, that they were being badly governed. All in the name of improper consent, all in the name of unfair practices, where Parliament had not only abused its powers from a legislative standpoint, but that the British Empire was abusing its um powers by means of making life in the colonies uncomfortable, all in the will of imposing measures that deprived a man's fundamental right, not just a fundamental right to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but perhaps a, a right to... Um, excel at uh, producing goods that um, promoted unprecedented economic growth. Is that a form of pursuit of happiness? Yes, it is. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and this has been a, a wonderful series. I'm very appreciative of the fact that so many of you uh, were uh, interested in it, and it's fair to say that all of us have walked away learning more than we had ever learned before from uh, textbooks in school about the Boston Tea Party. I look forward to being back on the air again uh, some point here soon. Um, my next mission will be to, uh, to find out what to talk to you all about next in terms of a new book series. But whatever it, it will be, 
don't worry at all because it will be something that's relevant, something that all of you will benefit from. After all, that's my mission, is to teach all of you, my fellow listeners, everything there is of historical significance that's relevant. And while, yes, history is unpleasant, I mean, there are we all know by now that there are unpleasantries with history. The most important thing we have to do is, is to learn about those unpleasantries even though it might at times be hard to discuss, we have to learn whatever there is that's necessary so the mistakes from the past don't get repeated, not only in the present, but in the future as well. So thank you again for listening, and I will try to be back on the air again here soon, sometime before um, Christmas Day, to let all of you know where it is where, where it is next that our time machine is going to be taking us. Take care and have a great evening no matter where you all live in the world. Stay safe.